about to reconcile, wreck and wreck and wreck We about to reconcile, bitch. We about to We about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to reconcile, we about to Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to yet another edition of Reconcile This. I am your host with the most, Dr. Frederick Gooding Jr., a.k.a. Dr. G., and I am aided by my co-host with the co-most. You all know, ladies and gentlemen, the mouthless, the magnificent, the marvelous Mr. Perkins. Mr. Perkins, what is going on, my brother? Dr. G., long time no see. How are you? Uh well, I guess long time no here for me. Um, I, again, quite fantastic. I have heart pumping in my uh, heart, and uh, excuse me, I blood pumping in my heart. Um, <laughs> to have another heart inside the heart, that would be a little difficult. Yeah, but little cool. bottom line is, it's pumping. It's pumping. So, so, so we're bumping. Uh, so, yeah. so you know, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. Um, speaking of good to be here, um, I'm very excited to welcome. Uh, to this discussion with us today, an individual I met when I had the opportunity to travel uh, to uh, your home state, mm -hmm. and that would be the Commonwealth, right? Uh, is there another state that's Commonwealth? Yes, that would be Pennsylvania. Okay, so we share that in common. Oh, no, Massachusetts, no, <laughs> that's right, okay, okay, there we go. So we're talking about um, the president, you know, he doesn't get all that shine, but he's still there, Madison. We're talking about his home, Montpelier. And so without any further ado, we would like to welcome to this discussion the interim president and chief executive officer of the Montpelier Foundation, Dr. Elizabeth Chu. Thank you very much, Dr. G. It's a pleasure to be with you. 100%. So first of all, um, we like to always just uh, start with the background because some of these jobs are not the type that you just find in the classified section, right? <laughs> so, so can you just share with us a little bit more about your journey before we get into Montpelier uh, matters? How do you, with a PhD, end up in a foundation type museum type environment? You know, curating and telling stories. Like, how does that happen? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, so for me, I I studied art history. So I had a you know bachelor's, master's, and PhD in art history, and I started off my career working in art museums. But I decided, or I figured out, um, maybe about seven years into my my career, that I was really not interested in taking objects out of context and hanging them in museums. Mm -hmm. to understand how works of art, but also all kinds of material culture relate to people, to space, to architecture, to landscape. Um, and so when I, I was going back to finish my PhD at that point, when I got out of my PhD program, I decided that I would not go down the academic track, <laughs> but, but um, look for a job at a historic site. Okay. 
ended up going to another presidential plantation site in Virginia, <laughs> Monticello, the, mm-hmm. the home of Thomas Jefferson. I've heard of it. I've heard of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I fortuitously um, started at Monticello exactly one week after they had held a press conference and said, and this is in the year 2000, hmm. January 2000, they had said, they said, um, well, after a lot of research and this um, DNA study, we- Oh, is this in Sally Hemings? Mm-hmm. We believe mm-hmm. Jefferson and Sally Hemings had a long-term relationship interaction right. that resulted in six children. Six, oh. right. Yeah. And so that was, as you can imagine, the beginning of a whole new era there. And it took a very, very long time for the public to hear that on every tour. Hmm. It was an incredibly interesting time to be there. And I realized that, and I was a curator there. I realized, and I had I had, I had previously studied gender, but I had not studied race per se. Okay. And never had not really studied the institution of slavery, but what I realized is that what what interested me was telling the truth about all of American history, all the different stories that made places like Monticello and Montpelier exist. Hmm. And so, you said something interesting about even though it was researched. And even though it was deemed factual, there was still some sort of resistance in terms of the time it took for those facts to be disseminated freely to the public on paying tours. Uh, would you like mind talking a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's very hard to explain this. Are you from Virginia, Marcellius said? I am, I am, I am. I'm on Hampton Roads, though. Hampton okay, Rose. well, maybe you'll, I mean, the, the entrenched old patriarchal world of Virginia was just straight up racist, not going to believe that (laughs) literally that Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings had sex. That, I mean, the, the, the president at Monticello got death threats when, when all of this started to, you know, come out and he didn't do it. (laughs) I mean, right. Just because he was, Starting to tell the story. Wow. Telling the, tell the truth. Veterans. Mm. Yeah. So, and there, I mean, we, we, there were, you know, interpreters who wouldn't do it, who had to be fired. And it was, it's hard to explain how, well, tumultuous it was. Um, how trying to do the right thing, trying to do the honest, truthful thing was incredibly hard because of all the layers of, you know, baggage so i i want to before we get too too far in, into uh the, the present now i kind of want to revisit um just for our listeners sake uh, that moment when that information of Sal- sally hemming and if you can just briefly just educate our listeners on who she is in the story of, of tom jeffs because it's one of those stories like if you're not if you're That's not true. in the research it may go over your head of sure. absolutely it's so- important and such yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, <laughs> so this is this is a really interesting and important story. So um, Thomas Jefferson, there was a there was an enslaved family at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation 
with the name of Hemmings, H-E-M-I-N-G-S. Mm-hmm. The Hemmings mm-hmm. arrived there when Jefferson's wife um, moved, you know, married him and moved there. She she brought with her enslaved servants to be her servants. And one of them was a woman named Elizabeth Hemmings called Betty. And um, over the course of the next, you know, few decades, Betty Hemmings had a number of children, um, and one of them was a daughter named Sarah Paul Sally. Hmm. Um, and the Hemmings is occupied, they, they were the closest family to the Jefferson family, so they occupied most of the kind of higher, highest status roles all over the plantation, whether working in the house or doing the, the most highly skilled jobs. Um, and Um, In Jefferson's lifetime, there were stories published in the newspaper um, that he had had a slave mistress named Sally with Uh, children. So so you're saying this was, at that time, kind of relative known amongst the people then that this was something that Thomas Jefferson was engaging in. Wow. And Jefferson was fortunately a really obsessive record keeper. So we know um, we know that Sally Hemings gave birth to six children. Four of them survived childhood. Two of those um, remained enslaved. Their names were Madison Hemings and Eston Hemings. They remained enslaved at Mont- Monticello. The oldest two, a, a son named Beverly and a daughter named Harriet, were allowed to walk away leave and likely passed because we don't know what happened to them after that. So um, during, so, so, so the story hung out there always. Mm. Historians for generations denied it based on nothing. Um, The family, of course, denied it. Um, And this was, you know, it was, but it was out there. And, um, until the 1970s, there was a biographer named Fawn Brody who wrote a biography of Jefferson, and she went and located some of the descendants um, of Madison Hemings living in Ohio. And that's when the story first kind of started to come out. But it wasn't until the later 1990s when a retired, um, I think he was a pathologist at the University of Virginia, a medical doctor, did a DNA study um, and they were, for a variety of reasons, they weren't able to determine that this son, a, a direct descendant of a son of Madison Hemings was fathered by Thomas Jefferson, but they could tell that it was a Jefferson. Mm-hmm. So that scientific data with reams and reams of historical data and the director of Archaeology at Monticello did a um, statistical model called the Monte Carlo simulation, where he matched up the dates that Sally Hemings would have con- would have likely conceived her children oh. dates with Jefferson's arrival back at Monticello after being away. Okay. From that, there was a not, there was only a one percent chance that it was anybody other than than Thomas Jefferson. So. Historians and scientists believe and have for many years that the preponderance of all this evidence makes right. it clear. The story. Mm. 
And so that's what's so amazing about I always knew who they were. <laughs> right, right. You know, and it was still amazing as alarming what you're telling us is that even with the facts, uh, there's still resistance. And so based upon what you said about the descendants of Jefferson, we wanted to pivot to talk about the descendants, well, particularly the MDC or the Montpelier Descendants Committee, because mm -hmm. this is a unique model from what we understand in terms of storytelling, particularly when you mentioned the P word plantation. Would you mind um, uh, sharing a little bit more about the MDC and its relationship to the Montpelier Foundation? And before we get to uh, your, your story, and what, what you had to go through to maintain that relationship. Sure. So um, Montpelier is, as you said, James Madison's plantation uh, up the road from Monticello in a little town called Orange, Virginia. And um, it Montpelier didn't open to the public at, as an historic site until 1987. So it was kind of late, you know, Johnny come late. And so um, when it opened to the public, um, very soon thereafter, a, a, um, a woman named Dr. Betty Kearse came to Montpelier to meet with staff and said that her family had a very strong oral history of being descended from James Madison. So, mm. so she was the first descendant um, of African ancestry and to come here. And then over the years, a few other people came. In fact, when the Montpelier archeologists announced in the late 1990s that they had identified the cemetery of the enslaved, some local community members came and asked if they could have a ceremony to honor the ancestors. And sort of building on that, Montpelier staff began to work with hmm. And the, the group kept growing over time. Either people would come to Montpelier or Montpelier researchers would, would you know, locate people. And, and so every um, project that we did to interpret African-American history, no matter what it was, it was a collaboration between descendants and Montpelier staff. Wow. For many years, for really like um, 25 or more years, that was informal and unofficial and was at the staff level working with descendants. Okay. You no, know, the descendants weren't paid. It didn't really go up to the level of the board or the executive leadership, but it was incredibly fruitful and productive of the kinds of interpretation that was going on here. And we were not field for it. Hmm. So fast forward. So we, we did a very major project that um, opened in 2017, an exhibition called The Mere Distinction of Color. It was really, it, the exhibition is the descendants telling stories through their own voices and with their own words and their own faces. Um, it was, it's a very impactful exhibition. So as a result of the kind of attention we got from that, in 2019, um, the descendants gathered together here the Friday before Juneteenth, and they decided to create their own separate nonprofit 501c3 organization okay. called the Montpelier Descendants Committee. Okay. Then on, the work with Montpelier would be done sort of co-equal you know, co nonprofit organizations working side by side. Okay. And I should say that the year before that, in 2018, we had had a big gathering here of museum or descendants, museum folks, scholars, and we had created a document um, sharing the experience from Montpelier that, that um, was a rubric of best practices 
for descendant engagement and historic sites and interpreting slavery. Hmm. And so that that's also become kind of a you know a go-to in the field. But so that's what the descendants were going to use to work with the Montpelier board to get to a relationship where the where the MDC and the Montpelier board had a relationship of structural parity, where they existed mm. in, in the governance of the whole site in an equal relationship. Uh, and so, so far, no problem, right? So far, no problem. And that, that went along. And then right as COVID was starting in the mm. beginning of 2020, we had a massive leadership shift. We had a new president and a new board chair. And it's very hard to explain how disconnected and disjointed everything was. But basically, the new leadership had no clue hmm. about the centrality to the DNA of Montpelier hmm. of partnership between staff members and descendant community members and MDC members. Okay. So basically, right from the start with the new leadership, the MDC, it was a very difficult situation there had to be there had to be there were media there were mediators brought in oh and a lot of things happened in good faith and in bad faith okay and um so even though in the summer of 2021 the Montpelier board did vote to move ahead to create to create a relationship of structural parity with the MDC in March of 2022, they reverse that. And they, um, we're gonna do structural parity, just not with y'all. We're gonna pick our own descendants. Wow, wow. I, one, I mean, just, this has been very uh, informative uh, for me as a Virginia native, and I'm pretty sure for those that are listening, um, whether they are in the state of Virginia or in the United States or are part of our international listenership, this structure that, that you uh, speak of where there's this um, partnership, to me, this sounds like what actionable reconciliation is in real time. This to me sounds like what healing looks like beyond time and location when we are able to identify those who have been impacted by the atrocities of enslavement, the disfranchisement of enslavement, and bringing them back into the fold to say, like, we still need you to tell the story, because we don't, we can't have the full story if those that were enslaved impacted the descendants of the Hemings, the descendants of uh, these, these plantations aren't also present when we tell the story, um, because I know as growing up, uh, they would take us to Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg. They would take us oh, right. to Jamestown. Right. And we would go through these um, makeshift, these uh, replicas of what the, the towns would look like. And there would be very minimal talk of those who were enslaved. Mm. There would be not a name, not their lives. So we lose the idea of their own humanity because mm. they become property, they become slaves not an enslaved person, not a, a person and a people and a family that laughed and joked. So when you, you are able to bring the descendants back in, it kind of returns the humanity back into that work. And so for you, someone who has been in this field and, and continue to do that, how is this new structure, well, not say new, but this structure that is implemented here kind of elevated the work that you do now um, and allowed you to do things that probably were not possible 20 years prior before a structure like this was implemented? As someone who's, you know, worked my whole career to teach the public in the scholarly community, but the public about 
the true story of American history. Having, being able to collaborate and partner with descendants, when a, when a visitor comes here and see, you know, sees or hears, experiences the, the, the actual words and stories of a fellow human being living in the world, right. this is reality and truth. That's actually way more impactful than just reading it on a, you know, a sign or having an interpreter tell them in the third person. It actually makes it real. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the best pieces of feedback that we have ever gotten here for our exhibition and interpretation sums it up way better than I can actually say it. And what they said was, this exhibition helped them remember that. Mm-hmm. Slow- happened one person at a time. Mm. Wow. Wow. One person at a time. And so with this idea of one person at a time, would you also share a bit about the exhibits that you all have fostered? I mean, using some of Edward Baptist's research, bringing in prominent African-American researchers such as Hassan Jeffries, um, because not everyone has swallowed this hook, line, and sinker with two thumbs up, right? And so, uh, you know, how do you uh, still uh, wage that uh, aspect of, you know, the, the fighting the good fight, if you would, in terms of telling the, the whole truth history? Well, exactly. So we, the exhibit that I was talking about is called The Mere Distinction of Color, which is a quote from Madison. Um, the reason it was so impactful is because it was done with the descendants, with, you know, with, I mean, they're, they're, they're two kind of, two North stars were um, uh, respect and show the humanity of our ancestors, emphasize the humanity of our ancestors and don't leave slavery in the past. Mm. So we work together to have the stories of the ancestors be told through the descendants words in a way that was very much um, appealing to empathy, not being like an academic dry topic that's kind of abstract and making it like issue in the gut real. Mm. And then the other thing that we did was to create, a, you know, because most people think Emancipation Proclamation, check. Right, right. 13th Amendment, check. Um, and people don't understand what, you know, that it really, didn't change that much. Um, so we wanted part of the exhibit to, to, to help sh- teach people that sl- that in very many ways, slavery's legacies are absolutely still here. And um, so we made a film. Um, and that was how we first met Dr. Hassan Jeffries was through working on that. He, he was a, a collaborator on that film actually. Um, that, but, that, yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> okay, but, but still, the, the question that's bubbling with me right now is, as a white woman, how do you arrive at this point where you're saying the word plantation without blinking? I mean, you're talking about whole truth history. You're talking about how central and important it is to include the descendants and tell their stories. So how do you get there personally and professionally? And then secondly, to professionally endure, for lack of a better word, the persecution that you you, you went through? Because uh, when you talk about the, the board making a decision and changing their mind, you were kind of caught in the crosshairs with all that. And I think at one point was unemployed, you know, before you, you're back in your position. So do you mind telling how those two stories kind of intersect? 
Yeah, so this is not about me, <laughs> but I will share just one story about my, my background. So I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and um, the schools in the county where I grew up were not integrated until mm-hmm. the fall of 1970. 70. Wait, 7-0? I thought Brown v. Board was in 54. Wow. Yes. So I was in the second grade. Um, in the public school when my sister was in first grade. Um, and, um, you know, most of the white families of our general socioeconomic situation went to the, you know, church basement <laughs> academies. Um, you know, they left, but they didn't want to go to school with black kids, but my parents believed in integration. So we stayed. Um, and so that was really being, growing up in public school in the seventies, being in the minority. I mean, that, that's what really shaped my outlook on the world. And so much so to where, um, when the board changed their mind, I mean, here you are many years later, still saying that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to waver from my position. I mean, because you easily could have maybe shifted your position just to, you know, maintain your, because I mean, your employment, but, but what were you, what was going through your mind when the board kept changing their mind and, and, and there was this up and down about whether you're going to stay or not, and whether they were going to more importantly continue with the original pledge of telling the full story? Yeah, so when, when they announced that they were going to not move forward with, with the MDC, um, Many of us here, I mean, those of us who had the you know luxury, the the privilege of making enough money so that we you know could stand up and speak out, um, we spoke to several reporters about what was actually going on here. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, I and two other colleagues were fired. Matthew Reeves and Christy were suspended with pay. Um, So that is what happened. And then that actually ended up, (laughs) this is going to sound crazy, but being a good thing because it generated so much backlash, like everywhere, like in the museum field, in this community, you know, all all over um, in this region, you know, so they got the, the, the former administration here just got a ton of backlash from it. Uh, Dr. Chu, I, I have a follow-up. And in regards to this time period that you're speaking of, when the board comes in and makes these decisions that kind of leaves you on the outside of this project, there's also another thing that's going on in our country in regards to CRT. And so I'm interested in knowing, you know, how state of Virginia is and, you know, where some of their politicians lie with this topic. How has it how did that time period, which we're still very much in, but it's not as forefront in the news as much now, but during that time, how did that also impact your work as someone who was trying to tell the full truth and people's misinterpretations of this theory is also being applied to, you know, disarray and dismantle and, and, and such? Yeah, that's just, that's such an incredibly important question. Um, so we have gotten, I mean, the, you know, for the last several years since it has been going on, we've gotten pushback and people calling us names. I mean, we've heard, you know, we've heard every name in the spectrum. 
um, we actually um, last when that when the when the board when the when the MDC was finally victorious on May the 16th and parity was achieved and, and every, the, those of us who were, who were fired who came back and the reconstituted incredible board um, you know was, was put in place. Um, there were some articles, there were nasty articles about blacks taking over mm. oh, well. Madison's plantation. Wow. <laughs> Really, wow. that's, that's reminiscent of the failed reconstruction period. You know, the fear mongering of blacks taking over the Senate and whatnot. Are you serious? There is nothing new. Um, we were getting really like threatening phone calls and you know emails. We, we were up, we were for a little while kind of physically afraid. Um, you know, thankfully nothing happened. Um, but you know, there are just trolls out there who will you know turn and so. So we've gotten a lot of backlash, bad hate mail about about CRT, about what we do here in general. We do have a children's section of the exhibit that probably opened since you've been here, Suzy. But we've gotten a lot of crap on that um, about CRT, which is you know <laughs> ridiculous. Hmm. And so, with all this resistance that you all have endured. What does reconciliation look like moving forward? I mean, what type of plans um, do you all have to continue to tell the story and still incorporate uh, the, the the lives and stories of descendants, many of whom still live close to uh, the plantation? So we have several really exciting projects. The the biggest one that we're moving ahead with now is um, we are we're memorializing the cemetery of the enslaved. Hmm because this is the plantation of the father of the constitution, or we are thinking about this as a way to memorialize those who lie in the ground here, but also everyone who we consider the invisible founders. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, invisible so founders. we're, yeah, so that, that's, we're moving forward with that, with fundraising, with, um, you know, working with the, with the MDC hand in glove. Um, so stay tuned for, for information about that along the way. And then um, we're also going to put everything about the visitor experience here on the table and stand back and say, how can we do this better? Hmm. How can we do an even better job weaving this together into a great complicated tapestry that, that does the best job possible telling the whole story? How can we use parts of the property that, that haven't been open to the public if we have 2,700 acres? Oh. How can we use technology? How can we get out of our own museum people head, you know, headspace? How can we? So, so that's gonna that's gonna be happening. I mean, I'm 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 super excited for that. Um, I have not ever been, um, but I definitely want to make that plan uh, to trip up there because um, as a Virginia native, um, as someone who remembers those elementary school trips to Williamsburg, Jamestown, even Richmond to visit the uh, Confederate White House. Um, I remember those trips and I remember the lack of context. I remember the absence of those who were enslaved. How am I possibly on a plantation? And you can tell me nothing about the people that made this plantation actually work mm. and operate. So I do think that, you know, what you all are doing and the, the charge that you're leading up is, is 
is that work of reconciliation. It is that it is that work of, you know, this is what history is, but what do we make of it and what do we do with it? And how has this history been living in our own present? And so, um, one, I definitely uh, appreciate and, and commend you for the work that you're doing and the charge that you're leading up. And I think my last question would be for our listeners who may not be able to take a trip to Virginia and then see that physically, are there other ways that they can also receive this information? Is there a uh, virtual tour by chance uh, that people could engage with if they aren't able to physically make the trip up? Yes, I wish I had a really good answer for that. Um, no. They can go to our website, but it's not okay. very good. Okay. <laughs> but as I was saying, we are... We, you know, we want to absolutely enable that kind of experience to be possible in the future, because this is a really, really interesting place. As Dr. G can attest, it's an absolutely beautiful physical place. Yeah. Oh, wow. So somewhere where very dark and ugly things happen and great things all at the same time. You know, that's our that's our that's our shared American origin story, the ugly and the beautiful. Mm. And, and we yes. So. I would say go to our website, um, look around, <laughs> um, and um, look for for you know what's coming up here um, in the future. Can you repeat that phrase? You said America, the, the ugly and the beautiful. Oh, yeah, our, our our shared American origin story is ugly and beautiful. Wow. Hmm. Like wow. Well, and and Mr. Perkins, make sure you go to the basement of the um, the quote unquote main house because. Um, at that time when the exhibit was installed, I mean, I think along the line. Still there. Okay, but but I think uh, probably it was the only rival you all had at that time in terms of really telling the whole truth was the Whitney Plantation and um, outside of New Orleans, because and I think you all are setting a very powerful precedent on how to tell the whole truth without being afraid of the quote unquote consequences. I mean, uh, and I think you can attest that um, people still come. People are still interested and people are still becoming engaged. And so, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, we always say we shouldn't erase the truth, but we should rather embrace it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're very thankful to have a few minutes to talk with you and have our listeners understand that the path of reconciliation oftentimes is not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you describe a, a winding pathway, right, with some ups and downs. Um, and, you know, to actually put your job on the line for a period of time, I know you said it's not about you, but still you do represent this idea of reconciliations nonetheless worth fighting for. And I think both this, this place and its significance, but also what we've been through in the process, we have, we have a lot to teach actually about reconciliation here. Yeah. Um, and so we're excited to see how you all will continue to tell the story. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Elizabeth Chu, for joining us. Thank you. Um, and thank you. It's been an honor to be with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, and again, uh, we plan to come on out and, and check it, uh, visit yeah. soon. But in the meantime, we just want to tell all of our listeners that um, as with all of our guests, as you see, uh, as they walk the path of reconciliation, just continue to do the best you can with what you have. That's what I do every day. Marcellus, you better let me know when you're here. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm a Hampton Roads kid, but I can make that drive. So I got you. <laughs> All right. This has been really a pleasure. I cannot promise what will ultimately happen as a result of our enterprise in studying TC's relationship with slavery, racism, and the Confederacy. But I can pledge to you that we are doing the best we can with what we have. 
Reconcile, 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 reconcile